Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the National Bank of Canada's second quarter results conference call. I would now like to turn the meeting over to Mrs. Linda Boulanger, Vice President of Investors Relations. Please go ahead, Mrs. Boulanger. Thank you, Operator. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us so late in the day, exceptionally this quarter. Presenting to you this afternoon are Louis Vachon, President and CEO, Bill Bonnell, Chief Risk Officer, and Justin Parent, Chief Financial Officer. Following our presentation, we will open the call for questions. Also joining us for the Q&A session are Stéphane Achard and Lucie Blanchette, co-heads of PNC Banking, Martin Gagnon, head of Wealth Management, Laurent Ferreira and Denis Giroir, co-head of Financial Markets, and Jean Dagenet, Senior VP Finance. In order to respect physical distancing, we are hosting the call in a different room than usual, which may impact sound quality. We apologize in advance if this results in any technical difficulties, and we thank you for your patience. Please also note that the presentation is slightly longer this quarter, as we wanted to address a few key topics as we navigate this environment. So before we begin, I refer you to slide two of our presentation, providing our disclaimer regarding forward-looking statements. With that, let me now turn the call over to Louis Vachon. Merci, Linda, and thank you, everyone, for joining us this afternoon. The world is going through extremely challenging times, both from a health and financial perspective. Our thoughts are with those suffering loss or hardship due to COVID-19. Since the beginning of the current crisis, our focus has been and continues to be on the well-being of our employees, our clients, and our communities. Our mission of putting people first truly resonates with what we are experiencing today and is guiding us in our decision-making. I am extremely proud of how fast we adapted to this unusual and difficult environment. This would not have been possible without the profound cultural and digital transformation of the bank over the past few years and the strong engagement of our employees. I wish to sincerely thank all our people for the way we have managed this crisis to date and also our clients for navigating with us through this situation. Governments, regulatory bodies, and banks have collaborated collaborated efficiently to rapidly implement extraordinary relief measures to help Canadians navigate through their current uncertainty. We are deploying exceptional efforts to help our retail and business clients. We have been providing financial relief measures where most needed. We have been extending our balance sheet, and we continue to support capital markets amid volatility. Now let me say a few words on the province of Quebec. While the lockdown restrictions have been more severe since the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis, the situation is stabilizing and the economy is gradually reopening. Looking forward, the outlook in our home province remains favorable based on structural strength, including sound public finance, a well-diversified economy, a less indebted consumer, and a well-developed financial support system for local businesses. 
We entered the crisis on a solid footing with strong capital and liquidity positions, strong credit quality, and a defensive positioning. Our businesses have shown their resilience and are performing well in extremely challenging times with revenue growth across all segments led by financial markets and wealth management. In the second quarter, pre-tax, pre-provisioned earnings were up 20% from last year, demonstrating the bank's earnings power. While our underlying pre-tax, pre-provisioned results were strong, we have adopted a prudent approach to provisioning considering the uncertain macroeconomic outlook. As a result, we significantly increased our provision for credit losses and recorded $504 million for the second quarter, more than five times recent levels. Nevertheless, we are maintaining strong capital and liquidity levels with a CT1 ratio of 11.4% at the end of the second quarter. Last March, OSFI announced a number of actions to support these SIBs in supplying credit to the economy during a period of disruption. Banks are expected to use this additional lending capacity to support Canadian businesses and households not to increase dividends and or buyback shares. Consistent with this expectation, the bank paused buyback activity after having repurchased 525,000 common shares during the first half of the fiscal year. Earlier today, we announced a quarterly dividend of 71 cents per share on change from the previous quarter. Turning now to quarterly performance by business segment. Our PNC segment delivered pre-tax pre-provision earnings of 389 million, up 3% year on year. We must look at the second quarter in two parts, before and after the beginning of the pandemic. We were off to a very good start through the first half, but as of mid-March, our business was impacted by lower client activity in the context of the increasing strict lockdown measures encouraging Canadians to stay at home. These measures had a significant impact on the momentum of several businesses. Since the very beginning of the lockdown, we have been supporting our retail clients with more than 110,000 deferrals to date, including on mortgages, loans, and credit cards. We have been able to offer clients uninterrupted service thanks to strong employee mobilization as well as talent mobility between branches call centers, and operations teams. The new reality has also acted as a catalyst, spurring increase in digital adoption and effectively accelerating our digital transformation. We, National Bank is also committed to supporting its business clients. We have been prudently extending our balance sheet to our commercial and corporate clients with $3.8 billion drawn in existing facilities during Q2 and $1.8 billion in new lending. <clears throat> in addition, we have provided principal payment deferrals for over 3,000 business clients, and we are participating in all applicable government programs. To illustrate, we have now provided in excess of a billion dollars to over 20,000 SMEs just through the CBA program. I am proud that National Bank has been ranked as number one in client satisfaction across Canada for small and medium-sized businesses since the crisis began. Our wealth management segment delivered a robust quarter with pre-tax, pre-provisioned earnings up 23% year-on-year. Our business mix and client-facing strategy proved successful in the current environment. 
transaction volumes were particularly high at National Bank Independent Network and National Bank Direct Brokerage, and solid inflows into a full-service brokerage and private banking businesses more than upset market declines. We are pleased with the strategic and technology choices we have made in the past, which are giving us the resilience required to be there for our clients through the uncertain times. Our financial market segment continued to deliver strong performance with pre-tax, pre-provision earnings up 70% year-on-year. Our global markets franchise was well-positioned going to the crisis and delivered particularly strong results. Market volatility observed in the second half of the quarter translated into a significant increase in volumes across all businesses. We also delivered a solid performance in corporate and investment banking driven by M&A and government debt underwriting. Overall, I am very pleased by our ability to support our corporate and institutional clients in very challenging times. Turning to our international segment, Credit G and ABA are resilient operation, well positioned to perform well throughout the crisis. Credit G reported a decline in revenues, primarily due to mark-to-market adjustments to the, for, to the fair value of certain assets. The underlying collateral on those investments remains strong, and fair market value, fair value should increase when markets stabilize. In Q2. Increased provisions reflect changes in the macroeconomic environment. We remain very comfortable with Credit's book, which is well diversified to limit the downside impact of COVID-19 stress. Specifically, Credit has limited exposure to unsecured assets, significant exposure to asset classes less correlated to consumer economy, and investments with structural enhancements that provide further downside protection. In the current environment, Credit G's earnings will likely be flat this year. We are looking forward. We continue to emphasize discipline growth, and we are confident in Credit G's ability to generate growth in revenues and earnings in the medium term. ABA Bank continues to grow, albeit at a slower pace. The COVID-19 health situation in Cambodia is, stable, is stabilizing, but some sectors of the economy have been hit hard, such as manufacturing and tourism. Slower economic growth in the country has led to slower revenue growth at ABA. ABA entered the crisis with strong capital and liquidity position. In terms of credit, ABA is benefiting from what has been historically a prudent provisioning approach, and the vast majority of its portfolio is secured. Financial relief measures have been offered to customers, and 6% of clients have taken advantage of those programs, with 95% of those uh, that, uh, that chose that program, continuing to pay interest on their loans. We expect ABA to generate slight earnings growth for the current fiscal year, and I'm confident that ABA will return to above growth, to above average growth, once the global health and economic situation stabilize. Overall, we are very satisfied with the performance and positioning of our international activities. To conclude, There remain significant uncertainties regarding the severity and the duration of the current crisis. At this time, it is impossible to predict its full impact on the economy and on the bank's future's performance. But there are clear signs that the economy is rebounding from April lows. Our primary focus will remain on supporting our clients and our employees 
and on the well-being of all our stakeholders while managing the business with our usual prudence. In these uncertain times, I am confident, confident in the resiliency of the bank and the agility of our teams across all business segments. The strength of our balance sheet, the quality of our credit portfolios, and our defensive positioning also provide us with comfort as we navigate those difficult waters. Based on everything we see today and the earnings power of the bank, I am also confident in our ability to maintain the current level of dividends to our shareholders. With that, I will now turn the call over to Bill. Merci, Louis, and good afternoon, everyone. In the investor deck, we provided additional insights this quarter on our credit provisions and allowances, as well as lending exposures in a few sectors most directly impacted by the COVID-19 crisis. Before I begin to review the slides, I'd like to repeat some key messages that we've discussed in the past as we approach the later stages of the credit cycle. We maintained an underweight position in unsecured consumer lending. We maintained an overweight position in our home province of Quebec, as we believed the Quebec economy would be resilient to stress given lower home prices and consumer debt, a greater share of two-worker households, and a government with a strong fiscal position that would be able to provide support during an eventual downturn. We maintain discipline in our commercial lending activities, keeping growth rates to below peer average, particularly in certain sectors, such as commercial real estate. We reduce the size and rebalance the composition of our oil and gas portfolio. And since IFRS 9 was implemented, we try to be consistent and prudent in building allowances on performing loans. The COVID-19 crisis that began earlier this year is much more complex and far-reaching than previous downturns we've seen. However, we feel that the decisions we've taken over the past years on the defensive portfolio mix, prudent underwriting, and disciplined growth rates have provided us with the resiliency needed to support our clients and the domestic economy throughout this downturn. Please turn to slide eight. We continued our prudent approach to provisioning this quarter in the context of the uncertain macroeconomic environment. Total provisions for credit losses increased to $504 million in the second quarter, more than five times the PCLs registered last quarter, caused primarily by a large increase in provisions on performing loans. The most significant driver was the revision to our forward-looking macroeconomic scenarios, which generated more than three-quarters of the $391 million, or 99 basis points, of provisions on performing loans. Retail performing provisions were $111 million, driven primarily by revisions to our outlook for unemployment. Non-retail performing provisions were $254 million, driven by a broad-based deterioration in outlook for a number of economic factors. In the international sector, performing provisions increased to $26 million. Impaired PCLs increased to $120 million in the quarter as specific provisions were taken in a number of non-retail files across several, several industries and provinces. Given the significant increase this quarter, we provided a more detailed summary of our allowance for credit losses on slide nine. As a reminder, under IFRS 9, the way we calculate ACLs is as follows. We start by developing three forward-looking economic scenarios and assess a probability for each. We run our portfolios through our IFRS 9 models to compute ACL based on those scenarios. We assess the adequacy of our management overlays, which can reflect additional factors or uncertainties. 
to then arrive at the total ACLs for performing loan portfolios. The result of this rigorous process was an increase in our performing loan allowances to $978 million, including impaired and POCI total allowances for credit losses reached $1.2 billion, a 57% increase from last quarter. Breaking down this total ACL by portfolio type, you can see the increase in allowances for a retail portfolio was 30%, reflecting the underweight position in unsecured consumer lending. In the non-retail portfolios, total ACLs increased by 90%, reflecting both the sudden change from benign to severe economic conditions, as well as prudent provisioning in a highly uncertain environment. Looking at total ACLs by stages, performing loan allowances increased by 67% from last quarter, representing about three times coverage of the last 12 months impaired provisions. Non-performing allowances increased to $302 million, representing a 39% coverage of gross impaired loans. All told, with these significant increases this quarter, we are confident that our allowances prudently reflect the potential impacts on our portfolios of the deterioration and uncertainty in the outlook for the economy. In trying to assess the adequacy of allowances for credit losses, it's important to do so in relation to the size, mix, and risk profile of the portfolios being assessed. On slide 10, we provided a few metrics to help investors in that assessment. The ratio of total allowances to total loans increased to 77 basis points at the total bank level. One should remember that this ratio uses notional loan balances and is not risk-based. In comparing this ratio across banks and banking systems, it's important to consider portfolio composition and risk profiles, such as the nature and weight of residential mortgages and credit cards. A more risk-based approach that we've talked about on previous calls is the ratio of performing ACLs to last 12-month provisions on impaired loans, which reached about 2.8 times at the total bank level and about three times excluding the international segment. We've provided the breakdown excluding the international segment given the impact on the ratios from the amortization of Credigy's unsecured consumer portfolio that occurred over that period. Since the beginning of IFRS 9, we've tried to be consistent in building prudent allowances and think that this is reflected well in these ratios. Turning to slide 11, our gross impaired loans increased to 780 million or 48 basis points in the second quarter. Formations were pretty stable in the retail and international sectors. However, for commercial and corporate, in addition to normal course formations, we revised our view of the likelihood of full loan repayments in a number of files managed by our worker group, moved them to impaired status, and took specific provisions. Details of our loans in sectors most directly impacted by COVID are provided on slide 12. Our exposures in most of these sectors are quite limited and we're working closely with impacted clients as they navigate through this difficult time. Slide 13 shows details of our portfolio in the oil and gas sector, which has been impacted both by the COVID-19 crisis and the recent price war between major international producers. While oil prices have seen a significant recovery from recent historic lows, it remains a challenging environment for producers and services. 
As you know, over the past five years, we've significantly reduced the size of our lending to producers and services and rebalanced the mix in our portfolio towards larger cap clients and investment-grade pipelines. Some data on payment deferrals provided to clients is on slide 14. Our employees have been intensively working with our customers to provide relief measures to help them face this unprecedented situation. Our data looks in line with industry data published by the CBA when accounting for our market share for portions. Details of our market risk exposures are provided in the appendices. Trading VAR increased through the quarter, averaging about $9.5 million, and we experienced nine days with trading losses. In an extremely volatile market and with a majority of staff working from home, the team performed remarkably well and was able to provide market-making and transactional support to clients throughout the quarter. In closing, the economy has changed from benign to severe conditions in a remarkably short period, and the monetary and fiscal policy responses have been unprecedented in size and speed. These changes will generate volatility in provisions on performing loans, as we've seen this quarter. In the end, the performance of our credit portfolios will, I think, be evaluated by the amount of provisions on impaired loans that will occur that will incur over the next couple of years. Those are sure to be higher and lumpier from quarter to quarter than what we've enjoyed over the past few years. However, we believe that having maintained a defensive posture in product and geographic mix, discipline in portfolio growth, and having prudently built allowances to help offset those future credit losses, we have a resilient position that will enable us to continue supporting our clients through these challenging times. On that, I will turn the call over to Gislain. Thank you, Bill, and good afternoon, everyone. In light of the uh, current environment, I will focus my remarks today on capital and liquidity, beginning on page 70. We entered the crisis with uh, robust capital and liquidity levels, allowing us to support our clients in these challenging times. Net income generation, net of dividends, but excluding provision for credit losses, was strong across all business segments in the second quarter and added 52 basis points to our CD1 ratio. This was offset by the provision for credit losses, mostly on performing loans, which deducted 41 basis points of CD1. Risk-weighted assets growth, which I will comment in a minute, was primarily driven by credit risk, and reduce our CD1 ratio by 71 71 basis points. During the quarter, pension plan had a positive impact on capital, and we also benefited from a a regulatory measure on ECL amounting to 23 basis points. Share buybacks were minimal this quarter. We ended the quarter with a solid CD1 ratio of 11.4%. Now turning to risk-weighted asset growth on page 18. Excluding foreign exchange, Our risk-weighted assets increased by approximately $5.5 billion during the quarter, with the largest increase coming from additional lending and drawings on committed credit lines as we support our business lines through the crisis. RWA also increased following our decision not to renew a series of securitized credit card portfolios that matured during the second quarter since market conditions were not favorable at this time. The CT1 impact was 12 basis points, which we expect to recover when market conditions stabilize. 
Now turning to page 19, our total capital ratio stood at 15.5% at the end of the second quarter. At this time, our goal is to continue investing organically in our different business activities. Despite the uncertainty we are facing, we are confident that even under deteriorating economic conditions, we can maintain capital levels well in excess of regulatory minimum requirements for the rest of fiscal 2020. On liquidity now, our liquidity coverage ratio stayed strong during the quarter at 149%. Total deposits continued growing healthily during the quarter with strong inflows of stable customer deposits, essentially matching the draws from our corporate and commercial clients. In spite of the uncertainty surrounding the economic conditions for the rest of the year, we currently anticipate the LCR to remain high until the end of fiscal 2020. In conclusion, while much uncertainty remains, the bank has strong underlying business fundamentals and has performed well through the onset of the pandemic, adapting to a new reality. We have a solid balance sheet, strong capital and liquidity levels, and we, have backed, we are backed by the earnings power of all our business lines. This puts us on a solid footing to support our clients through these uncertain times. On that, I'll turn the call back to the operator for the Q&A. Operator, we are ready for questions. Thank you. We'll now take questions from the telephone lines. If you have a question and you're using a speakerphone, please lift your handset before making your selection. If you have a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad. If at any time you wish to cancel your question, please press the pound sign. Please press star 1 at this time for any question. There will be a brief pause while the participants register, and thank you for your patience. We have a first question from Scott Chen from Canaccord. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Uh, good, uh, good afternoon. Um, Louis, just on the, uh, when you talked about the international and, and credit and the mark-to-market on, on certain assets, can you give us examples on, on some of those assets that were marked down and, and, and that you expect that, that could recover in a market recovery? Uh, sure. Jean, do you remember which, uh, which portfolio was, uh, had the fair value adjustment? Mortgage. Reverse mortgage. Reverse mortgage. It was a reverse mortgage portfolio, uh, Scott. Okay. And, uh, and just, just briefly, just on the capital market side, underwriting and advisory fees were, were very strong. Was underwriting mostly DCM um, that you called out government uh, debt underwriting? And, and maybe you could kind of talk about the pipeline you're seeing post-quarter on both those. Sure. I'll let uh, Laurent or Denis answer that. Uh, did, you, did you hear the question, guys? Yeah, I did. Yes. Thanks. Okay. Um, so, yes, mainly debt for sure, uh, although we did uh, get some, uh, some new equity issue during the quarter, but the growth mainly came from, uh, from the debt side. And uh, going forward, I think we are seeing a pretty good pipeline on that one. I don't know, Denis, if you want to... No, exactly. Yeah, we'll continue to see a big uh, issuance uh, scheduled for the provinces, obviously, because of all those programs that they put in place. But also in the corporate sector, uh, we're seeing, uh, you know, since the middle of March up to now, a very, very big calendar of uh, new issuance coming to the market. And uh, Scott, okay. the last thing is, you know, we, 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 we've been saying that publicly. We feel that there's a need for equity in the system uh, to, to, <clears throat> to navigate uh, through the crisis. So we feel that at some point we've started to see a little bit more 
equity issuance. Uh, but we, you know, over the next few quarters, I think uh, there, there's a scenario that I think it's increasingly probable that uh, we'll see, uh, you know, hopefully a revival of the uh, of the equity capital markets business as uh, we see more and more uh, equity uh, being issued either to prop up balance sheets or to finance acquisitions. Got it. Th- thank you very much. Thank you. The next question is from Gabriel Deschain from National Bank Financial. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Uh, good morning. Uh, my first question is for uh, either Louis or Lucie. Uh, it's still early, but uh, Quebec is one of the provinces that uh, opened, reopened uh, more ambitiously than some of the others. And uh, wondering if you're seeing any uh, any trends uh, in your business that can that you can talk about, whether it's uh, you know, customer behavior in terms of what they're spending on, borrowing habits, or any shifts in the, the, the deferral numbers that uh, everybody's going to be looking at this uh, this quarter. Thank you. Yes, Gabrielle, it's Lucy. So um, I would say that our assumptions evolve on a weekly basis with the pace of the reopening uh, measures implemented in the different markets. So let's say we monitor, um, let's say, three components of customer behavior. The first one would be loan activity, and then the credit behavior, and also the customer's liquidity position. So in the past week, we've seen positive signs of recovery in loan activities, uh, where we see a slowdown, not collapses. So um, to give you some colors, um, the week of April 6th, we faced rock bottom in terms of uh, of activity. So mortgage originations were down 50% year over year that week. Auto lending was down 80% year over year, and as well, the credit card uh, purchase volume were down 35% month over month compared to February. And we have seen significant improvements since then. And as of last week, for example, mortgage originations are down 5% year over year, and auto loans are down 35%. And it's also interesting to see that the number of transactions improved quicker than the volumes themselves and do not follow completely the same trend. So that implies uh, to me that growth activity is coming back, but involving lower amounts, showing prudent behaviors from consumers. And on the credit card purchase volume, um, we are down 3% compared to the pre-COVID weeks. So clearly we went from pessimistic to more optimistic in terms of loans activity. But uh, although it's encouraging, we don't expect loan originations to come back to the level pre-COVID before the end of the year. Uh, On on behavior on credit, I would say overall that we see prudent usage of unsecured credit. Uh, I think people will remain prudent, uh, deliverage when they can, sometimes using some of the deferral uh, that is offered, and also reevaluating their willingness to take more financial risk. So I think... We will keep continue to see that prudent behaviors. Um, and to be honest, there is deposit and money in the cash account. So liquidity is there. Um, and all in all, I think it's all positive. We've seen stickiness also on this deposit. So that's very encouraging. Thank you for that. Very thorough. Um, and I think I said good morning. I meant good afternoon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> We're glad you noticed. <laughs> I just think I'm in the dark all day. Um, my question then for Bill, it's a, you know, one I asked of another bank, and I, I might ask all of them this quarter, is uh, 
we we kind of saw what we expected to see this quarter, big spike in provisions. Uh, can you give a glide path for, you know, what what you see over the next few quarters, or as far as you can you can tell, and and you know what the thought process is uh, behind that outlook? And and I'm thinking specifically of the, you know, the percentage of deferral, uh, lows in deferral. Uh, very high. I mean, yours are relatively lower, but they're still high. And, and, you know, some of that might be tactical people just taking a payment holiday and, you know, how do you see that evolving over the next few months as it, you know, relates to your credit outlook? Uh, thanks, Gabrielle. I'll break down the question into a few parts. Um, first, in terms of the path on, on uh, provisions, You know, with the information we have now, we would expect performing provisions to be much lower in the coming quarter. Um, We aren't giving a target range for PCLs because there's so much uncertainty in the path of uh, reopening and the the, uh, following the effectiveness of all the fiscal and and government programs that have been put in place. However, um, in the next quarter, if there's no significant change in our, in our outlook for the macroeconomic scenarios, then the performing provisions should go back to being driven by portfolio growth and, uh, and migration. Um, to give you, a, 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 you know, an idea um, without giving any, any target ranges or anything, but if you look at the MDNA in page 74, we gave a disclosure on our um, uh, sensitivity in the to the different scenarios, and you'll see that even if we weighted the pessimistic case 100%, the increase in the ACL would be less than uh, much less than it was this quarter. So, you know, we'll, we'll, the, our performing uh, allowances will be driven by our view of the information that we have at the end of next quarter and our outlook for the for the future. Um, but uh, we would expect them to be lower than certainly than uh, what we saw this quarter. For the for the deferrals, maybe uh, quickly, you know, um, it's uh, it is uncertain. We haven't had and uh, we haven't seen such a level of deferrals before. We we definitely have experience with smaller deferrals, with I think floods and fires, and our experience in those smaller cases has been very very positive. However, this is, uh, this is significantly different, one in, the, in that although unemployment has, has uh, increased dramatically, there is an expectation that uh, it may be temporary in many cases. There certainly is going to be some, some more permanent damage to some sectors and, and some areas of the economy, but a lot of it could be temporary. The amount of cash that was put into the system, as Lucy commented on, we're seeing good behavior. Um, the usage of lines of credit are going down. Credit card utilization is going down. So the prudency that uh, Lucy described is, is one data point that we're looking to try to assess what will happen after the end of the, the moratorium. And when we see lines of credit being paid down, there's cash coming from somewhere. Is that from uh, jobs or, or you know, they're continuing to receive uh, their income, uh, they are receiving the cash from the government programs. Um, uh, was there some that were using the deferral request more tactically, given the uncertainty that, that everyone was facing in March? Um, it was a good idea, and I think in giving advice to clients to take some, have a little bit more flexibility, and for the most major cash flow of uh, the mortgage payment, 
to give yourself some optionality. And it looks like some of the usage of those deferrals was really tactical given the uncertainty. And, and we have had uh, many cases where clients now that they're wanting to not run significant debt are asking to reverse the, uh, the moratoriums and go back to their regular payments. So the, it's all, it's, it's data, it's early. Um, we're following it extremely closely as uh, Lucy mentioned. Um, uh, and uh, and you know, we'll develop uh, our view more over the next quarters. We see continued uh, where the economy and where the consumer behavior goes. Does that answer your question, Gabrielle? Yeah, it does. I could go uh, long more, long ways more on that, but uh, there are other people in the queue. So thanks. Thank you. And the next question is from Manny Groman from Cormac Securities. Please go ahead. Hi, good afternoon. Um, just wondering about uh, your changing outlook um, on your uh, real estate footprint as a result of uh, the COVID situation. You show the stats in terms of work from home. Um, also, we know about uh, an increase in digital adoption. So kind of in two parts, have you changed your view? Do you see any potential for more significant savings from a reduced real estate footprint and maybe digging in more specifically in terms of implications for the branch footprint as a result of uh, this uh, this big experiment? Um, it's Lucia. I'll start with uh, maybe the branch footprint and uh, Louis could comment um, more broadly. So on, on the branch, uh, I would say we were already working two things in parallel before COVID. So we were transforming the in-branch experience and we had that to adapt it to, to COVID on that front. But we were also working on optimizing our physical network, and we already had a three-year plan on this. So we were active on that front, and our plans remain unchanged. So we have been right-sizing some urban markets where we might have had redundant locations. So we consolidated a couple of sites, and you see that in our branch count in the supplemental, but that didn't affect our branch share. So could we change our plan now because of COVID, or should we change it? Um, so I think we will pursue what we had planned for 2020, and we will see later in 2021 and beyond. But for me, one important assumption for the future will be, um, will the consumer keep and adopt their new banking behavior post-COVID? And, um, and I think with the digital adoption movement, um, it's very positive, but will it accelerate? Will it stabilize? Will it revert back? I think at, at this point, it's too soon to confirm. I don't know if you want to recomment more broadly. On no, in terms of the head office, uh, I think we have flexibility around the new head office for uh, working remotely, and uh, we're, that's why we sold our old building last summer, and not to be too overweight uh, in, in our own real estate portfolio. And uh, around the new tower, we have, uh, depending on uh, how much uh, working remotely uh, we will, uh, employees will be doing going forward, we have flexibility around uh, some of the space in the new tower. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Sumit Malotra from Scotiabank. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Thanks, guys. Good evening. Uh, I wanted to start with, with Bill, maybe, or uh, for Louis. You know, when we compare the, the increase that you've enacted on the performing portfolio today, I, I think it was exactly four years ago this quarter that you had the uh, the increase in this or the enactment of the sectoral provision that was taken for energy. And after you took that one, the the provisions required for that portfolio going forward were quite small. Actually, I think you ended up 
uh, being able to reverse or, or move some of it later. So when you tell us that the the management overlay was uh, sounds like a decent chunk of uh, of the remaining performing portfolio after the change in scenarios. Just curious, how, how would you compare these these two different models? The sectoral four years ago, uh, which allowed you to deal with energy in one shot, and what we'll see in the performing book going forward. Is it really that management overlay piece that you think is uh, the the one that gives you flexibility to to bring this down now that the scenarios have been changed? Uh, Summit, I'll, it's, it's Louis. I'll, I'll start with a non-technical answer, and Bill will give you the more technical one. Uh, as you know, as a team, uh, once we identify an issue, uh, we, uh, we tend to uh, move uh, very proactively to address it. That's what we did four years ago, uh, and thanks for reminding me of the, uh, of the anniversary. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We've but, both been doing this a long time, I guess. <laughs> but uh, I, I think we, uh, you know, going back further, uh, you know, when we had the BCP issue in 2007, uh, we went after that also quite aggressively, if you recall, in terms of provisioning. So I think that's uh, our style of management to uh, try to identify an issue and, uh, and address it aggressively. Now, suffice it to say that this one is, uh, is more complex, um, uh, quite a bit more complex than, uh, than the oil and gas situation four years ago or even the BCP, um, you know, in 2007, 2008. So, uh, you know, uh, hopefully we're, uh, we're uh, you know, well, uh, well ahead of it, but it's, it's too early to say that uh, where we stand exactly on it. Bill, anything you want to... Uh, particularly on the issue of management overlay. Yeah, listen, I think uh, Louis answered the question very well. I just remind you that there, there are many pro pieces of the process around IFRS 9. There's the scenarios themselves, which are an important aspect of, uh, of driving the ACLs. There's a probability attached to that. There's the models themselves that uh, um, uh, are important in, in uh, the magnitude of the PCLs that are taken on performing loans, and there's the management overlay. So I don't want to give you the impression that any specific, uh, whether it's our severity of our, our, our scenarios or it's the models themselves or, or what, but uh, when you add them all up uh, uh, and the ACL is calculated, I think you can look at the, uh, you know, our slide 10 to relate it to the risk positions and see why we're comfortable that we've uh, been prudent in uh, developing those those uh, allowances. So I answer okay. your question, Simon? Yeah, that, that's very good. And, and I think Gabe referenced that we could probably go into these a lot more, but uh, we've got a few more calls this week that we can we can we can try our luck with that. One more on, on the other uh, obviously important issue is is capital. Uh, I, I would say for for national the, uh, the the increase in the ECL and the the transitional arrangement obviously helped. I want to get to the next piece uh, that we're going to focus on, which is going to be the RWA migration. Um, it doesn't look like to me, at least in some of the, the credit density calculations that we do, that you actually had much of, of anything at all. And obviously, this quarter was the one that focused on the drawdowns of corporate and commercial lines. So maybe this is for Gislain. I'm just curious as to what, what type of speed you expect uh, that RWA increase to take as a result of, of credit migration. Do you feel that the, the RWA growth you saw this quarter uh, is, is something that could be replicated by, by migration, or is it likely to be at a, at a more uh, reduced pace than that? 
Thank you, Samit. But uh, well, I will let um, Bill answer the question. Okay. Yeah, so just in terms of migration and thinking about the path uh, um, through the, the downturn, you know, I would expect migration to, to, uh, to happen over several quarters, um, unlike performing PCLs with a significant change where the performing PCLs is more front-loaded. So I, uh, I think what you saw in terms of RWA growth and the, the credit side this quarter, a lot of it was because of the drawdowns, this, the magnitude of the drawdowns and the new facilities provided to, to clients early on, um, they tended to be uh, the larger corporates that were, had been issuing in CP markets and others that, uh, that couldn't any longer and use these facilities. So the quality of the drawdowns were very, very high. Um, and, uh, and some of those drawdowns were paid back during the quarter after the markets uh, opened up. So for the, for the migration, I think uh, over the next few quarters, it will be different than this quarter. It'll be more on, it'll be more based on how the economy progresses, the speed of the reopening, the success of the fiscal programs to stimulate the economy and support certain sectors. Um, and uh, it won't be a, uh, you know, it won't be a one quarter story. When you mentioned you, yeah. When you mentioned you expect to stay above regulatory minimums on on CT1, what were you thinking as of 10% as a floor? <laughs> well, this is just laying a summit. So I don't want to give you a number essentially because we need to be prudent with all those scenarios. There's so much uncertainty right now that uh, that uh, we don't want to to <laughs> provide a specific number. But uh, of course, uh, we, uh, you know, with the scenario that uh, that we ran, we're pretty sure that we would be able, you know, to to uh, <clears throat> maintain our capital level well in excess of regulatory minimum. And uh, so it's 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 for capital, but also for liquidity. Thanks for your time, guys, and appreciate your flexibility on uh, on the reporting time tonight. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Doug Young from Desjardins Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Uh, good evening. Uh, maybe sticking with regulatory capital, one thing that just caught my eye was the decline in RWA related to market risk, which just surprised me in light of the environment that we're in. I would have expected it to have gone the other way. So I'm just curious as to what, what happened there. And then you know, on the market risk component of it, you know, the credit you talked a bit about, the market risk component of it, how should we think of that evolving over the next few quarters? Hi, Doug, it's Bill. I'll, I'll start off and then maybe Laurent or, or Gislain can, can comment. So you will have seen the, with the uh, volatility in the, the markets and those volatile days entering our, our historical VAR period, that VAR increased uh, during the quarter. And we would expect that uh, VAR will remain elevated and, and a little volatile for a period of time. Um, as part of, of uh, some of the, the regulatory measures that uh, were given to take this into, in, into account, the current situation, some uh, measures gave uh, some benefit to the, the capital treatment. Uh, and the, uh, so we would expect VAR to stay high and we wouldn't expect to see a reduction in, uh, of the same magnitude in risk-weighted assets for market risk going you know, every quarter for sure. I guess if the regulatory changes weren't in place, can you quantify what the impact would have been for market risk in the quarter? 
Yeah, Doug, this is just Lane. So it's going to have been uh, 18 basis points, uh, the impact on, on capital. So, you know, our understanding is that the, the temporary measure will be removed when the market conditions have returned to normal. So at that moment, of course, we would lose the, the measure, but uh, our market risk would go, would go back to normal as well. So it would be positive on the CT1. But the impact for the quarter was uh, 18 basis points of capital. Yeah. And Doug, just one more thing to add on there, the, on that measure, the, uh, you know, with, with VAR and StressVAR, there were some measures put in place after the last crisis, which made sense. Um, SVAR was a very good one as part of Basel 2.5. It wasn't designed and the intent wasn't to, uh, to uh, be attached to a, a situation where you're currently in the stress uh, scenario. Um, so the the uh, the appropriateness to remain aligned with the you know what the tool was used for is is more questionable in the in this environment. So I think the uh, the measures were quite appropriate. Yeah, understandable. The second question, I think you mentioned somewhere in the release that uh, on some of the deferrals, you're not actually charging interest on interest, which is the first time that I've I've seen that, and it's only for certain clients that you're not doing. That for is that is it a material amount of clients and which clients would um, uh, would that apply to and you know did that result in you having to kind of as well build uh, performing loan PCLs uh, at all this quarter? Uh, it's Lucy. So on the deferrals, um, all the deferrals, you know, the um, they are uh, they charge interest obviously. So it's just for the period of the deferral we gave a relief to our to our customers, so to all our mortgage customers. So it's not a question of applying or not. Um, it may be a small amount, but uh, in principle, I think it is, it is fair, uh, the measures we put in place. But it has no link with the uh, bill with any of the, uh, of the ECL and, uh, and the provision. So just to understand that, so that so that's just, you're not you're not charged. So if you give an interest deferral, you know that interest doesn't accumulate onto the balance in in these cases. Is that correct? Yes. So uh, the deferral, the interest is accumulated to the balance, and it is reset um, at the date of the uh, maturity of the term. So it is not re the the change in in payment that it may give is not affected when the deferral start again, it's really at the end of the term that there is a, an adjustment to the, the payment itself. Okay, I, I may come back on that one offline. And then just yeah, lastly on it, yeah, and then just lastly on ABA, you know, you indicated that earnings will be up modestly in, in fiscal 20. And if I look at year-to-date earnings, there were 95 million um, this year, and then last year it was 118. So it implies, you know, the next few quarters you're in the 10 to 15 million dollar range for ABA. And you know, just curious if I'm in the ballpark. And well, what would be the big headwind? Is this more of a is this a credit issue that you foresee? Is this just loan growth going the other direction? Just hoping to get some color because that's been a decent growth driver and has been a stable part of the business. Hoping to just get some color on what you're seeing in in the Cam Cambodia business. No, the loan growth, uh, it's Louis, uh, the loan growth has really slowed down, so we don't expect it to go negative, but it's going to be, you know, uh, low single-digit growth probably on the loan side. Um, and same thing in deposits, and deposits will continue to grow, but not at 30 
because, as you know, there's a smaller uh, social safety net in these countries. So with, uh, uh, with the slowdown in the tourist industry and the manufacturing industry, people have to use uh, part, of their, uh, part of their savings to, uh, to get through the crisis. So that's the main driver uh, of, uh, it's, you know, it's the current economic conditions that's slowing down significantly the growth in uh, deposits and loans. And why would that cause a, like a sequential, decent sequential decline? Because um, ABA put up 54 million just in this quarter, and I get there was 20 million of tax item. But if I'm yeah. thinking right, and it's 10 to 15 million, it just looks like it's like the decline would be quite material year over year. And I get the slowdown in growth, but it looks like it's actually yeah. it's going to be negative year over year, not negative earnings, but negative growth. Yeah. No, I don't think so. So. Uh... Maybe we were prudent on that one, too. <laughs> Fair enough. Thank you very much. Thank you. The next question is from Sorab Movahedi from BMO Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Hey, thank you very much. Um, I apologize. I had to drop off a part of it. So if, I, if the questions have been answered, I'll go back at the, at the transcript. But I just wanted to start off with, uh, uh, with, with Bill. Um, Bill, lots of talk, obviously, that, that, the, that the bank had exercised quite a bit of prudence coming into this, obviously not expecting this, but I think over the last number of quarters, Louis had said you've been very selective with especially commercial loan growth, for example. It, it is a little bit surprising that you, you had to increase the reserves so much, like five-fold. Can you did you find that a surprise yourself when you were sitting down doing this and 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 what are some of the businesses that may have surprised you? Um, uh, so sorry, yes, that question was answered, so you can look at it now I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll, I'll start I think you know you I, I think I may have uh, I think we answered it earlier it was a it was a twofold it was me and Bill so. Uh, going back to your point, um, at the end of the day, you know, never mind stage one and stage two losses. I think the real criteria of outperformance going forward will be stage three losses. And on that, I think, you know, I'm, I think as a team, we're still confident that we're going to look pretty good on a relative and absolute basis. Okay. The other thing so you know, Sarab, from experience is when we identify an issue, we tend to go at it pretty, very proactively. So um, historically, that's what we've done with oil and gas. That's what we've done with EBCP. So in this, I think it's more the prudence that you see is more, you know, our, our corporate culture and the way we've been managing the bank for the X many uh, last years. And we, want, we feel that's the right way to manage a business. And that's more a continuation of that uh, way of managing the business then, uh, you know, us uh, being wrong in our forecasts or positioning in terms of risks. Bill? Yeah, um, maybe just to add on uh, technical, I think the, the, we weren't surprised um, that the non-retail increase was larger than the retail increase. I think, uh, and, and thinking uh, about the theory of Iverse 9, I think that's what was expected. I'd point you to the uh, Bank of Canada FSR, which 
gave a stress test, and that's exactly what they uh, um, had forecast as well. I think the surprising thing is, if you think about during the quarter, Sorab, the uh, uh, the views on the severity of the uh, of the economic uh, um, inputs to the model certainly uh, evolved during that quarter. Um, so unemployment and GDP, uh, um, most importantly. But for the uh, the fact that the non-retail portfolio performing loans increased as a bigger percentage, no, I think that's just the that's just how it works. Okay, and and. Uh... And I appreciate it's late in the day. If I can just ask one other question, I mean, maybe of uh, of Louis, Louis, the or or Gislam for that matter. I mean, I think you've highlighted how much of a year-over-year increase you had in the quarter in the pre-tax pre-provision, so arguably reflective of the underlying earnings drivers uh, away from the reserve building. I mean, what do, do, do you care to provide some thoughts as to how you see that trending forward? Well, it's uh, as you know, it's a pretty, uh, pretty. Uh, you know, we would describe the current environment, Sorab, as uh, uh, going where no one has gone before. So this is Star Trek finance. That's what we call it, uh, the current environment. Well, you look uh, like you're doing really well in this one. Yeah. Well, you know, the episode is not over, so uh, we're still watching for the Klingons. And uh, <laughs> so, so uh, listen, I think. Uh, first of all, the, let's, let's go back in time a little bit. We're, we're certainly, I think, you know, uh, without getting arrogant or cocky, I think we're legitimately pleased with the performance of the business lines um, during uh, Q2, uh, all of them. And uh, I think it shows that I think we're, we're pretty good at managing crisis, but also I think it, it, it suggests that we made some right strategic choices. Now, I understand that we're not out of this crisis yet, so we're not going to have the Stanley Cup parade on St. Catherine Street while the, the games are still going on at the Bell Center. But um, I think, you know, I, th- I think some of the choices we've made and the, the, the positioning. So um, in terms of PNC, um, I think that some of the stats that, uh, that uh, Lucie stated earlier are encouraging in terms of uh, uh, signs of, of recovery. That being said, we know that uh, net interest income, uh, low interest rates is, uh, you know, is, is a reality we have to deal with, um, and uh, that, that, is, uh, that is more of a negative for the next few quarters. Um, capital markets, I'm, uh, as you know, I'm a permanent bull on capital markets. I think it is a business that's been grossly understated and underestimated by, by uh, you know, uh, many stakeholders. And I think that that was demonstrated again in uh, high fashion uh, in um, in Q2. Um, I think I look at the fundamentals of uh, of uh, public finance debt, the need to recapitalize, uh, managing risks, managing portfolios. I think the fundamentals of that business, you know, within you know normal quarter to quarter volatility, uh, is, remains very good. And also, I think our wealth management business is. Uh, is extremely well positioned as evidenced last uh, quarter. And uh, we still see, you know, volume of transaction. The quarter is still very early, but the volume of transaction remains to be, uh, remains still strong. And I think I've addressed our international. I think, uh, you know, uh, I think we're doing fine this year in 
2020 on a, on a relative basis in our international. And we feel that our growth, growth strategy there uh, post-COVID is, uh, is basically intact once we're out of the crisis. And no, we don't expect a, a catastrophe in the meantime. So that's where we, we stand. I think we'll, we'll take it a quarter at a time. Um, we're not going to take uh, undue risk or stupid risk to, uh, to inflate the top line. That's not what we, we've tried to avoid to do, at least in the last three years. And don't expect us to do that uh, uh, in the current quarter or the past, in the next few quarters. So I think we'll try to generate revenues but, and growth, but at, uh, you know, without losing sight of risk. Thank you very much. Thank you. The next question is from Nigel D'Souza from Veritas. Please go ahead. Uh, thank you. Good afternoon. So I had a two-part question for you, and I wanted to kind of reference the uh, macroeconomic assumptions that are built into your uh, expected credit loss modeling under IFRS 9. So this is laid out in page 73 of your shareholders report. Uh, and I, I was hoping you could provide some color on the economic conditions you're expecting based on these assumptions, because when I look at your uh, next 12 months forecast, you're still expecting positive GDP growth, and in most of these uh, scenarios, you're still forecasting unemployment uh, to be below 10%. Um, so if you could touch on that and just, you know, kind of looks like you're expecting a pretty strong V-shaped recovery, but if you could just expand on that. And then the second part, um, when I look at your downside scenario, uh, it looks like the, your expectations for house prices haven't really moved since, uh, you know, the October assumptions. And uh, the GDP growth forecast actually kind of, uh, you know, went up a bit. It went, you know, you're predicting down 2% in October, and now you're predicting about down 1.7% uh, for GDP. So could you just expand on what's feeding into these economic assumptions? Sure, uh, Nigel, it's Bill. I, uh, I'll take that question. Um, uh, I can understand your question. The shape of the uh, of the, the path on some of those variables is very unusual. It is not uh, it's not a normal uh, 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 forecast going forward. Star Trek finance. It's um, and and when we uh, when our economist team was building this scenario intra quarter, there is significant uh, changes and shocks. Uh, that um, the way that it's sliced and diced and presented in that table, I can understand it's hard to get a, get a feel for the severity of it. I think in the language on the next page, actually it's on the same page, 73. So if you look a little down uh, further, because it's hard to see from those, uh, those forecasts, uh, there's a little more color given about some of the magnitude of changes of, you know, GDP more than 30% down, unemployment around 12% and things, which don't, don't stand out, but that's really because of the unusual nature. That's why, uh, um, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, there, there are different parts of the IFRS 9 ACL. The economic scenario is one of them. Uh, you really need to look at what the results are and compare it to the risks. So, just in the magnitude, as, as, uh, as, I, as I mentioned earlier in the scenarios, um, all three scenarios are recession scenarios. And if you look at the, the, the next page, Nigel, the 100% upside scenario, so our most optimistic scenario this quarter, generates an ACL that is pretty darn close in number to uh, what we showed in Q4 as our 100% pessimistic case scenario. 
So um, uh, it's the, uh, the the impact the, the impact on the ACLs is what I think should guide you in assessing the the uh, the scenarios. Just because slicing and dicing with next 12 months and f- uh, future periods just doesn't uh, doesn't capture well the uh, the significant um, you know downturn in the variables. Does that help you answer the question? Help you with the the answer, Nigel? Well, yeah, that's very helpful. So, would it be fair to say that you know, as we get a better sense of the economic impact, uh, the assumptions that are going in are going to firm up a bit and uh, going to be less volatile or, or varied going forward? Well, even I think uh, if you looked at the base case, you can't see the severity within the the, the next 12 months. But right. uh, one important factor is that uh, the shape of of the path uh, that we have in the base case leads to still significantly higher unemployment in the remaining forecast period. So it's a sharp impact, and the fiscal and reopening of the economy does have a significant uh, improvement in a short period of time. But we get back to a a place where we're uh, 200 basis points higher in unemployment than where we started. So it's not uh, the scenario isn't a, a V and we go back to where we started. It's uh, 200 basis points higher unemployment, and it persists for a long time in the scenario. Um, so the, the, the way that you can see that is by the size of the ACLs that it generates more than by what, uh, you know, the, the way it's sliced and diced in time periods on the table. And, and, and it's, Louis, the, the thing that makes it even more difficult in terms of scenarios, and, and I, I know you know that because you've, you've done your own modeling, it's the public health, you know, the different path of how this thing would evolve this crisis would evolve from a public health standpoint is something that, you know, none of us here are, are uh, you know, qualified really to, uh, to uh, you know, to predict. So, and the path, there, you know, there are many of them, and they, they have a, a direct impact on the lockdown and on the recovery. So that, that makes all the scenario analysis even more complicated. Got it. That's, that's really helpful. Appreciate the color. Thanks. Thank you. The next question is from Mario Mendonca from TD Securities. Please go ahead. Good afternoon. I, I kind of want to go along the same direction here. Uh, Bill, it, um, would I be right in saying that the reason why the next 12 months shows GDP growth of 1.4% is simply because once we're out a year, we'll be comparing it to a very negative, uh, call it Q2. So, the math, it just sort of mathematically works out that way yeah. because you'll be comparing it to a very bad Q2. Is that the right way to frame it? I, I think that is part of it. And, and uh, Mario, the, um, given what we saw in the, in the scenarios, when it was first sliced and diced in this format of next 12 months and the remaining, we were surprised by how it looked given our understanding of the severity. So I, there are technical aspects like that. There's also the fact that the Economist, it's kind of from the end of Q1, which was already included March, was, was a significant decline in, in the calendar Q1. Um, so the starting point was lower. There's lots of technical aspects that don't show up uh, here, but the, the, uh, when, um, in previous quarters when our scenarios looked uh, very severe, I think I pointed out don't, don't look only at the scenarios. It's uh, each of the pieces of the, the process, which is important, and probabilities, which is very important, and in, in, uh, the modeling and such. So here uh, I would direct you as well to be cautious about just comparing uh, this table 
and thinking that you get the uh, real visibility on the severity of the shock. You really have to look at the ACLs. Yeah, I think from a from a comparability perspective, what might be helpful if, is if you showed 2020 full year, 2021 full year, that might make it easier to compare to what uh, maybe the, I'm not sure what the bank, the other bank's going to report, but that's what I thought we might see. Uh, but that's just, that's an aside. Okay. Uh, a, sort, a sort of related question is, you know, the timing of the recovery might be just as important, if not as, if not more important as the severity. So what I wanted to, what would be helpful here is when you think about your scenarios, when does, when do you figure unemployment returns to the levels we saw before COVID or the level of GDP returns to the levels before COVID? Is that like a late 2022 scenario? When do you see that essentially the return trip back to where we were before this mess? Yeah, in um, in our base case, uh, I think it is that uh, it would be if it's in this in that time period, it would be at the end of that time period. The, our base case is the unemployment rate stays high; uh, it's persistently higher than where it was pre-COVID, and it's a long time before it gets back. So towards the end of the period. And just so we're clear, you're saying the end of 2022? Um, More than that. The remaining period goes up to uh, 24, 25. So even beyond the end of 2022, yeah. before we're normal again. Because you see remaining forecasts, not for, the same for all the portfolios, but uh, some of it three years, some of it four years. I see where the unemployment so rate. I don't have the exact uh, quarter that it is, but I know from memory of seeing the shape, it's delayed in our, in our scenario. The actual, what happens in reality may be very different than that. And we hope that it's, uh, you know, maybe next quarter we'll be talking about uh, the, the green shoots and the positive signs there that, uh, that we're seeing maybe will be more rapid, but it is impossible to know. But I wouldn't be wrong in saying it's beyond 2022. Yeah. Yeah. You're correct. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Darko Mihalik from RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Hi, thank you. Good evening, and thanks for taking my, uh, my question here so late. Uh, I just wanted to revisit risk-weighted asset one more time, uh, Bill, and, and maybe, maybe just give us an idea of what it is we should be looking for to watch for migration. And when I look at what's happened in the environment, I see credit spreads that really blew out. They come back in a bit, but they're still high. I see rating agencies making all sorts of downgrades across all sorts of industries, investment grade, non-investment grade. And yet when I compare your last quarter to this quarter, I look at the PD bands, there's very little migration happening in the quarter. So what, what is it that would spark your team to, to migrate and cause an increase in risk-weighted assets uh, that I can see from the outside looking in. Um, thanks for the question, Darko. I'd say there's some uh, did occur this quarter, and particularly in some of the, the the most immediately impacted sectors. So oil and gas, you can think of, uh, and others. So the more directly impacted the sector would be, then I think the faster you would see that uh, that happening. Um, so it is related a bit to the, the mix in the book and uh, not, not, uh, not related to, um, 
uh, not all downgrades externally are, are heavy uh, portfolios that we're in. If you look at the corporate book, uh, there's a, a lot that are in utilities, industrial utilities, pipelines, and such. Um, and I think the uh, the migration would be much slower uh, in some of those, not much migration in some of those uh, uh, segments. I think uh, in real estate, uh, retail sector of real estate would be fast. I think office, it probably will be, uh, it's, it's more of a question mark about what, what will happen with office real estate. I can tell you we're sitting in a room, Darko, that is significantly larger than the room that we typically take these calls from, and we're all six or seven feet apart. Um, uh, the, you know, what, what will the new office space reality be and how that will play through uh, in an office uh, sector of the real estate? I think it'll be, uh, it'll be a little bit longer. So I don't know if that answers your question, but uh, you know, based on history, it's over a few quarters. It's not uh, all at once. Okay. And primarily driven by what happens with the economy. And, and I think the way it's dark with Louis, I think the way we're looking at the scenarios going forward is that um, the discretionary economy is the part of the economy that's going to be feeling the effect of uh, COVID-19 for the next few quarters a lot more than the general, the rest of the economy. Yes. So that's why in our, in our presentation, we, you know, we highlighted the sectors we felt uh, were the most exposed within the discretionary economy, restaurants, hotels, uh, retail, because we feel that the risk of migration is going to be significantly, either we've taken it already, as Bill mentioned, on oil and gas and some other related sectors, and they're going to be much more concentrated on those, whereas the non-discretionary part of the economy uh, and manufacturing and some of the others I think is, is going through, either is going through the crisis uh, on, on a more uh, stable basis or will rebound very, very quickly outside of the, uh, once we're out of the lockdown. So that's why we're trying to differentiate and look on those. And as Bill said, we feel that generally on the elements of the discretionary economy where there could be uh, a risk uh, of migration and losses, uh, we're under-indexed to uh, uh, to the general economy and maybe some of our peers. And, and maybe just to follow up to that, when I look at the, the deferral information you provided uh, on page 14 of your presentation, and I look at the, what you guys are referring to as non-retail, um, you know, 6% of the loan balances have, um, have been some sort of a, given some sort of a accommodation. I'm curious, uh, of the of the 4.4 billion of loans that have been deferred in the non-retail, how many of those are like small business kind of loans versus the larger, more commercial? Uh, or, or do you have that maybe that breakdown by you know how many of them are actually part of the government program and how many of them are 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 deferred, um, you know, without the, the need for a government program? Yeah, thanks, uh, Darko. I'll start off, and maybe Stefan uh, can add in. But um, similar to what we described in the retail, we think that uh, early on in the in the crisis, there was uh, a lot of uncertainty. Of if you remember back very early on, of if and when the government programs would come, the speed, and and I think proactively, a number of customers really 
uh, wanted to have some flexibility until they got a sense of, of what, uh, what the future would be, and I think that was a, a wise and proactive thing to do. Um, in terms of the split between the corporate and commercial, there was very little in corporate, but uh, or smaller amount in corporate than commercial. But Stefan, do you? Yeah, and well, um, give some anecdotes of. Uh, and and reality is, by quarter, by the end of Q2, the only program that was really out, complete, and operational was the CBA program, and there were hardly any uh, programs. Uh, on the co-lending with BDC and EDC. So the vast majority of the clients, Bill is, uh, is right, the vast majority of our clients of all sizes went, uh, went for the, uh, the deferral programs, if you want, that we offered. And uh, we, most of them had not, other than CBA small business, had not uh, tapped into the federal programs at that time. I see, okay. Thanks very much, it's helpful. Thank you. As a reminder, please press star 1 if you have a question. And the next question is from Steve Theriot from 8 Capital. Please go ahead. Hi. Let me first apologize if this is at all repetitive. I, I did drop off. I had to drop off for a little bit. But I, I did, on RWA inflation, I, I heard your response to Darko. But early, did you give any sense of what you expect here in terms of a base case RWA inflation, you know, I appreciate it lags in a little bit over time here, but is there any, any numbers that you can put around that? No, we didn't give a number. And, and you'd say it's not reasonable too? Um, I think it, I'll, I'll repeat the, I think it'll happen over quarters. I think it'll be yeah. driven, driven by what the reality of the economic path will be. It's less model based with our scenarios in terms of uh, ACLs and IFRS 9 is going to be based on the reality of the, uh, of the economy and of the, uh, the corporates and the, the client's performance. Um, Gisland, did you want to I think in? we, uh, sorry, uh, Steve, it's Louis. I, I think, I'm not sure where you uh, we were when you were offline, but uh, we, we answered with, uh, I think it was Sarab Darko that we, we mentioned that, you know, the reason we feel that you know, uh, RWA inflation is going to be uh, manageable, uh, notwithstanding the fact that we're starting uh, this quarter at 11.4 after after having taken what we feel is a very prudent uh, um, provisioning on, on the loans. Um, that when you look at the sectors of the economy, and that's why we we uh, we uh, when we look at where there's more vulnerability. For either losses or, or or RWA migration over the next few quarters, it's those sectors related to discretionary economy, and that's why we uh, uh, we describe our exposure to that sector uh, in uh, in our presentation uh, on oil and gas. As Bill has mentioned, we've taken some RWA um, uh, inflation already, and on the other sectors, you can see that it's relatively small in terms of percentage of our portfolio. So that's why we feel it's uh, it's manageable and it's going to be done over the next few quarters. Okay, and just the other thing I had, and feel free to to say so if this is repetitive. I was hoping to hear from maybe Lucy um, in terms of you know in, in PNC consumer activity levels would have dropped off you know very dramatically at the start of the shutdown. Uh, can we get a little color just around to what extent that has started to come back? How much closer to normal? Any any numbers around activity levels? 
I'd be interested in. Uh, yeah, well, I, I think I I gave a lot of uh, data yeah, points Steve, on I would, that. I would beginning. urge you to uh, to look at the uh, transcript because uh, Lucie gave a very lengthy answer to that very question uh, early in the in the presentation. Okay, that's great. I'll, I'll leave it there and circle back. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. And we have a next question from Mario Mendonca from TD Securities. Please go ahead. Uh, sorry to do this again. Just if we could go back to this RWA inflation, I think it's obviously an area of interest to everyone. Um, in your in your regulatory supplement, you, you talk. This is page thirty, the regulatory capital supplement. Um, you talk about how our credit risk RWA increased meaningfully, as much as three point seven billion dollars rated the book size, but book quality was actually a reduction, as in the there was an improvement in the book quality. Now, I think, Louis, uh, some of your team has helped me understand that part of the negative migration actually sits inside of book size, and it can't be uh, easily disaggregated. But perhaps you could help me understand how book quality can actually appear as an improvement in the quarter, given everything that we saw. This is Jean. The question is, the fact is what we report as book quality is uh, improvement to our parameters in the models. So it could have that we have improved the model, the parameters, the uh, data that we use to create those models, and that created uh, an improvement into the risk-weighted asset. So in a quarter like the one we just lived through, you found it appropriate to adjust the parameters to reflect a better outlook then? That's it's a better outlook of the methodology, not of the portfolio as such. And don't forget that for risk-weighted assets, we're talking about over an economic cycle. In, in uh, IFRS 9, we're talking about in point in time, so it's not exactly the same thing. So would it be fair to say, say that in subsequent quarters, we might see the book size impact decline as the drawdowns are reversed and perhaps commercial loan growth slows, but book quality could actually uh, deteriorate? Is that, is that the right way to look at it? But uh, the quality and the book size are reported in that table that you refer to into the same line book size. So you may not see anything different from uh, in the future. Oh, I see. So then maybe you could just answer this. Inside the book size, um, presumably there was a portion of that that reflected negative migration. Is there any way to disaggregate that, or is that the number you're telling me is too difficult to do? Well, we, we can estimate it. It's about four basis points in Q2 of 220. Okay. Negative, you mean? Yeah. Thank Increase you. risk-weighted asset. I understand. Thanks very much. Thank you. If there are no further questions registered at this time, I'd like to turn the meeting back to Mr. Vachon. Well, thank you, everyone, and uh, we'll uh, we'll talk to you uh, next quarter. And uh, in the meantime, stay uh, stay healthy and stay safe. Thank you very much. Thank you. The conference has now ended. Please disconnect your lines at this time, and we thank you for your participation. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.